This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, Easter Sunday, 2019. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Good morning. Today's scripture comes from Ecclesiastes 3, 16 through 4, 3. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice for his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. Thank you for being with us this morning. I bet you didn't expect that passage to be read. That's how we roll. You're going to find out. I'm going to pray and just ask God will say that what He's going to say despite me. So if you bow with me. Almighty God in heaven, we gather this morning to worship You. We're not here to think or to talk about what we have done or who we are. But Lord, we are here to praise you for who you are and what you have done to make right what we made wrong. This morning, Jesus, we gather to celebrate just as your disciples have been doing and are doing in other parts of the city and the nation and the world right now. Lord, for thousands of years, those who believed and have believed the good news, the gospel, have assembled to remember that the tomb is empty. Easter, Lord, would you forgive us for what this day has become? We're supposed to be a special, a unique day to tell the world about the most important person and the most important event in human history. But the occasion for this day has been forgotten by the world, and I fear it's just become another day like all others, even in the church, Lord. Inexplicably, the resurrection has lost its luster. We are impressed by such little things. Forgive us, Lord. Remind us that today is unique. But it's not unique in that tomorrow and the next day and the next day, the tomb is still empty. It has been empty. It will be empty that Jesus You died for sinners, and Jesus, you are alive today. You are ruling, and you are returning. 
Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see the emptiness of the world and open our hearts to see the emptiness of the tomb. Because the tomb is empty, Lord, we can live and we can face any number of tomorrows. Holy Spirit, help us this morning, comfort us this morning, convict us this morning, teach us this morning, whether through your whispers or your screams, awaken us to the way, the truth, and the life that is found in Jesus, the name and only name given under heaven through which men might be saved. It is in His glorious name we pray, amen. Again, welcome to Restoration Road Church. Thank you for choosing to worship with us this morning. For over 2,000 years, the resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth has been the most celebrated event in the history of the Christian faith, and that is because it is the most important event in the history of the world. Last night, I was speaking with my children as they went to bed, my five-year-old and I think my seven-and-a-half, eight-year-old. And I asked them that question. I said, what's the most important event ever in the history of the world? And they looked at me kind of strange, like, geez, it's kind of a big question. I'm like, five. Can you, like, (laughs) chill out? And my son said, well, I said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And my son said, well, you probably need to add something to that. And I said, what? And he goes, well, he's got to die if he's going to rise again. And they're like, Yes, he is, son. Yes, he is. Now, the brutality of Jesus' death on a Roman cross and the miracle of Jesus' bodily resurrection three days later, you know, that's the craziest news report ever heard. And the historical fact on which Christianity rises or falls. But if we're honest, it seems like a lot of people, including Christians, seem to get even crazier this time of year. It gets weird. One pastor said that you win people to what you win them with. You win people to what you win them with. And it seems like every Easter, instead of winning people with the foolishness of Jesus' resurrection, many more churches are foolishly trying to win people with everything but. So in case you're wondering... The first Easter celebrations had no helicopter toy drops, no Easter egg hunts, no door prizes, no special music, no extra-large offering buckets passed around, no famous celebrities, no clever videos, no bouncy houses, not even a free gift for visiting Gentiles. All we have at Restoration Road Church is what they had, and that is the news that Jesus was dead and He is alive. We believe that life, the universe, and everything is about Jesus. We believe the entire Bible is one big story that points to our one hero that defeated sin and Satan and death. His name is Jesus. And that's why it's our practice as a church to just go through books of the Bible. I told several people I was going to be in Ecclesiastes on Easter, and they said, well, how are you going to fit Jesus in there? It's like, it's not a matter of fitting Jesus in there. Jesus is already there. That's why we go verse by verse through every book of the Bible, and that's why I don't have some special Easter sermon today, because every sermon is about Jesus. But as providence would have it, God has us in this book of Ecclesiastes. So we'll call this an Ecclesiastes Easter, 
Now, if you know or if you've been with us over the last few weeks and have learned anything about Ecclesiastes, you know that Ecclesiastes can tend to be a, a bit dark and a bit harsh. But let's be honest. Life is a bit dark and a bit harsh. And if you look at Easter, if you consider the three days that Easter kind of, uh, you know, is the Easter weekend, outside of Sunday, two-thirds of it is harsh and dark. Consider the experience of the disciples. They went through all this glorious joy of being with Jesus and ministering with Jesus, watching Him feed people and, and miraculously heal people and raise people from the dead. And as they entered into Jerusalem, He was riding atop a donkey and people were saying, glory to the King of David, the Son of David. Excited. And the disciples were like walking next to Him like His soldiers, having argued recently who would be on His right and left hand. Thinking, here it comes, guys. It's about to get good. Yeah, we're with this guy, the guy you're all worshiping. And then consider what happened on Thursday night and Friday. And the shock of that, and the pain of watching who was one of their best friends, but also their Lord, hanging on a cross. And them all hiding and lying about knowing Him. And then Saturday, right? It didn't end just on Friday. Saturday must have been the longest day ever. Saturday was governed by the depression that follows extreme disillusionment when expectations go unmet and hopes go unfulfilled. And they looked back at three years of their life and went, what, what did we just do? What did we just lose? What, what just happened? It was a long time to Sunday. But Sunday is where unimaginable joy was found. But in order to get to, you got to go through. We all want to get to Sunday. But God has ordained it that we must all go through Friday and Saturday first. So simply stated, there is no glorious resurrection without an inglorious crucifixion and an occupied tomb. Dare I say, there is no Easter without Ecclesiastes. There's no Easter without Ecclesiastes. Now, if you're just joining us, We've been working through this book, Ecclesiastes. It's an Old Testament book that is very confusing. Um, it's, it's harsh, it's dark, and it's often ignored by a lot of pastors. They don't preach it very often. But what it is, is an old man's apologetic. After a life, looking back to the next generation or towards the younger generation, and this is a generation that, as he once did, is wrongly believing that more will satisfy. Whether it's more pleasure or more achievement or more money. King Solomon, perhaps the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived, embarked on a grand experiment for more. 
under the sun. As he attempted to really find meaning apart from God. Could he find meaning apart from God? As all men do, but in this case, with unlimited resources, Solomon filled his life with every possible desire you could imagine. He denied himself nothing, he says. And he attempted to fill the emptiness that he found in his heart. And as he put different things in there, his conclusions that he repeats throughout the whole book time and time again were the same. Everything that he found under the sun, which is life apart from God on this earth, is meaningless. It's empty like vapor. There one moment, gone the next, no substance whatsoever. He concludes that trying to use any part of creation to fill the creator-shaped void in our hearts is like chasing after the wind. It doesn't satisfy. So as we get to chapter 3 here, he is continuing to record kind of his honest disillusionments about life under the sun, life apart from God. He's looking at all these different aspects of life, different things that each of us individually have looked to for the wrong reasons and for the wrong things. And with every new observation, he tends to knock down a new idol. And idols are are those things that we look to, those things that we worship, those things that we sacrifice to, to get security, to get joy, to get all these different things. We use them as functional saviors to avoid the hells that we imagine. Take money. Oh gosh, I've got to have this money. If I don't have this money, it'll be hell. I won't have security. I won't have the possessions I want, whatever it is. And so we give everything we can to succeed and to create or or obtain money. And then we realize that it's lost so quickly. Relationships, all these different things. We snock in these all down. Says, don't look to that, don't look to that, don't look to that. I did. And now he begins to talk about justice. Justice. He writes in the first verses that in the place of justice there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So in other words, what he's saying is that as he looks out on the world, where there's supposed to be law and order, Solomon sees lawlessness. Be it the politicians, be it the police, be it the pastors, be it whatever other people are actually in power, he realizes that those who are expected to uphold justice are actually the ones practicing wickedness. This should not be a surprise to us. This has been going on for thousands of years and any daily news report includes the very things that Solomon is observing thousands of years ago. Rarely a day goes by that a politician or a pastor or someone else in authority falls and is revealed as unjust or evil. Now the other day, I guess as part of maybe an English assignment, I'm not sure, a young lady approached me after service and she asked me for some definitions. I was formerly an English teacher, so the first thing she asked me was, what is rhetoric? 
I won't even tell you what I answered because as an English teacher, you know I should have the right answer, but just in case I didn't, we'll move on. The second thing she asked me was, what is justice? Which is an odd question, right? Justice. So as I talked with her, I believe I said something, I don't recall exactly, about rightness or, or making things right. And as I talked with her more and I later reflected, I realized that really that's only partially correct. Because if you talk about making things right or rightness, there's an implicit question in that, which is, how is right determined? What is right? Who says? Did you know that Solomon himself wrote very famously in Proverbs 14, 12, that there was a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is the way to death. So here's the problem with everyone, and I include myself in this. Everyone under the sun believes that they're right. Everyone under the sun believes that they have the power to discern what is right and what is wrong apart from God. See, when someone believes that something is not right, we label it today as an injustice. And more often than not, a new hashtag protest is launched immediately and affirmed by the world without question. Most rightness today is not determined by objective standards, but by subjective preferences. What people think is right. And it shouldn't surprise us that we all seem to disagree. This is no more evident than the growing number of oppressed groups who claim that some authority has treated them unjustly. And I don't say that mockingly, I'm just describing as Solomon would, our world. In recent years, there's been justice movements, if you will, that fight against things like sexism and colorism and classicism and racism and ableism. Did you even know that was an ism? Sizeism, ageism, colonialism, and a bunch of other isms and acronyms with new letters attached to it every day. And each of these particular Movements or, or justice emphases are, are unique, and some are very legitimate examples of injustice. But all of them have one thing in common, and that is this. They're all centered on man. Man at the center of the universe. Man defining what is right and what is wrong under the sun apart from God. But that's not biblical justice. Biblical justice and worldly justice are not the same thing. Because biblical justice, first and foremost, is centered on God. True justice is completely different in that it has everything to do with what God thinks, namely what God says and is revealed as right or wrong. This places God at the center of our universe and therefore... He is the one who dictates our definitions as opposed to our desires doing it or our thoughts doing it or our circumstances or experiences or feelings doing it. God declares what is right and it often offends what we think or feel or experience. But justice must be determined by God and not mankind. And the truth is, I think Tim Keller famously said, 
if the God you worship never disagrees with you, more than likely you're worshiping an idealized version of yourself. So God is the one who declares what is right. God is the one who declares what is wrong. That's not where biblical justice ends. Biblical justice certainly has something to do with punishment, right? To uphold the justice of God, the rightness of God, is to punish unrighteous, rebellious deeds of men. There is punishments. There are just punishments on sin. But it's not just only punishment. Because biblical justice also has to do with restoration. It's not merely about punishing what is wrong, but restoring something back to what is right. Taking that which is broken and restoring it to how it's supposed to be. Now, God has established governments and leaders and judges, as Solomon says, to uphold justice, to punish evil, and to ultimately restore goodness. Even pagan governments are to be used that way. But as Solomon observes, and as we ourselves experience, these very leaders are doing often the opposite. Genuine injustice and oppression exists. And what this reveals is a simple truth that your mom and dad probably told you or some teacher did years ago. Life is not fair. And you can't do anything about it. Those who are charged with doing something about it, those who have the power, it seems, to do something about it, you find out are the very ones who are making it unfair. So life is harsh. Life is cruel. And life is unfair. So much so that if you read or listened carefully what was read in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the first couple of verses, Solomon says something very bold. He sees all the ugliness. He sees all the injustice. He sees all the oppression. And he sees those who are supposed to be the ones taking care of it, the ones actually oppressing. And he says this in verse 2 of chapter 4, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Do you hear what he said? As he looks at the world for what it is and what's happening, he says, it's better to be dead. No, no, no. Better than that is to actually never be born so you don't have to see it. Happy Easter. Right? But you've got to go through Friday and Saturday to get to Sunday. If you never sit in Ecclesiastes and look at the harsh reality of life, you will approach Sunday with false hope. You won't celebrate what has truly been done by Jesus Christ. So you see Solomon, he starts to speak to his heart. Whenever someone speaks to their heart or speaks to the soul, this is deeper, right? It's not just a fleshly observation and some practical fix. He says in verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. God will judge the righteous and the wicked, he says. Even though there doesn't seem to be anyone or anything who can make things right in the presence, one day, someone, that being God, is going to make everything right in the future. That gives him hope. That's a hopeful statement. 
That there is a judge. And he sees it all. It's interesting to see how Ecclesiastes as a book is kind of bookended. The beginning of Ecclesiastes, literally the first couple verses, Solomon looks at all of life, makes these very grand statements. He's like, I've seen all of life. And he says, all of life is meaningless. All of life is vanity. All of life is broken. Everything under the sun is wrong. But in the end, the last verses of Ecclesiastes, here's what he comes to his conclusion. In verse 12, this is a spoiler. I'm a fan of spoilers. Love spoilers. Tell me the end. Let me fast forward to the end. I'll read everything about every movie that's coming out. So, sorry. I'm going to spoil the end. Life is meaningless. At the end, he says, here's the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. What does he say next? For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He says, fear God. Obey God. Because God is a God of justice and one day He's going to make all things right and you're not going to be able to hide anything from Him. Now, That is both a really good and troubling statement. It's a good statement in that we don't have to take our own vengeance because there is a day of vengeance coming and God will make all things right. But it's also troubling in this sense. God will judge, but He isn't judging yet. God will judge, but He isn't judging yet. Essentially, God is allowing injustice to continue. And you go, why? Why why would you let this keep going? It's a fair and honest question. So Solomon says something else to his heart in verse 18. He said, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. It's my new favorite word, beasts. God is testing men. And in testing men, what He's doing, He's giving this test in the form of all this injustice and all this oppression and all this reality that those who are supposed to fix it can't or won't. And He lets it unfold. Things that He despises, if you will. And he does it to test men and reveal to them something about the world, but also about themselves. See, when we see injustice, we typically have kind of look for two things. We, We try to identify heroes and villains. And we're really good at identifying villains in the world. Oh, man, that's bad. Oh, that's bad. That's bad. He's bad. They're bad. They're bad. Especially in comparison to ourselves, but we won't get there yet. Everything's bad. It's not hard for us to point out villains. It's not hard for us to point out the oppressors or the oppression. Whether it be politicians or pastors or other people that are in authority, we're really good at identifying villains. And then with every villain that we identify, we typically identify a hero. There's the oppressor. Here's the heroic fix for it. 
And if we can't find a hero, then we typically make ourselves into one. Well, if you're not going to do it, I will because I know what's right and I've got the power to change it. But in time, what you realize is that all your heroes fail. You put hope in a politician to fix it, and they fail. You put hope in a pastor to fix you, and they fail. Or some other person, some other relationship. You were supposed to fix it! What you realize, given enough time, that every hero, be it someone else or ourselves, couldn't fix it. And what happens? That which we idolized, we instantly demonize because that hero didn't fix or stop what I thought they should stop or fix. You see, the unfairness of life, and that's true, the injustice in life is not designed by God to encourage us towards despair, or to encourage us to go, let me tell you everything that's right and wrong. What Solomon tells us is that it's designed to actually teach us about ourselves. That the injustice of the world and our inability to change things reveals that we are beasts. And in truth, guess what? We all know they're beasts. Oh, I know they're beastly. I know that guy's beastly. He's more beastly than me. Whenever the temptation to that comes, just compare yourself to Jesus and that will go away real quick. They are beasts. No, no, no. Everyone can blame the evil out there. I'm not talking about that. Neither is Solomon. Solomon says, what about the evil in here? What about the beast inside of me, in us? Oh no, the problem's that, the problem's him, the problem. No, the problem's in you, in me, in us. We're beasts. We're not heroic because we can recognize injustice. We're actually villains because we're not just ourselves. And, dare I say, often prideful and hypocritical beasts and villains. You know, recently. The leader of our nation was received or was criticized for describing one of the most violent gangs in the United States as animals. You had people coming out defending rapists and murderers. And all that to say is that no one likes to be called a beast. And no one likes anyone else calling anyone a beast. That's why you don't hear much talk about sin in the church anymore. But if we're actually more beastly than we think, we're not as great as we think we are. We're not as strong as we think we are. We're not as loving as we think we are. We're not as right as we think we are. Now, there are all kinds of kind of meanings we can get from this metaphor with beasts, but Solomon seems to emphasize one in particular. If you look in verse 19, he says, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beast. It's all vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. He says men 
are from the dirt. And just like animals, we return to the dirt and feed the flowers. Now the difference between men and animals is unique. And what I mean by that, it's not largely in how we behave. It's actually in how we think. Solomon has already said earlier that God has put eternity into man's heart. He said it in the same chapter. He's, he's done something unique to man. He's put eternity into his heart. So, you know, animals don't have the Spirit of God breathed into them like mankind does. Animals are not concerned with justice. Animals are not worried about the oppressed. You don't see any animal movements and protestings, hashtag, you know, beaver dams or whatever, it doesn't happen. Animals are not working to fight climate change. They're not thinking about the mortality. But you know, men think about all that stuff. Because there's something inside them that says there's more. And as men look at the world and they see how bad it is, and then they see how bad they are, that's supposed to lead us from under the sun to beyond the sun, right? It's simple. We look outward and we go, ugh. And then we go, wait. We look inward and go, ugh. And that forces us to look upward and go, oh. That's what Solomon's trying to do. And we don't like to admit that the world is as messed up, but even less... Do we like to admit that we're that messed up? Oh, I know how to fix things. I can make things right. No, you can't. Your option leads to death like everyone else's. So, what does all of Solomon's harsh observations of badness, what does all the emptiness of justice and judges have to do with Easter? Great question. And I would tell you everything. Last night before I went to bed, my sermons are typically done at the end of the week. I don't look at them, but Saturday night I read it and I go to bed. This time I went to bed, my wife quoted something. It's a quote I've actually used in sermons before. And I went, ah, and I get up, I had to rewrite part of my sermon. Love her. But it was very helpful. But she reminded me of this quote and it's from Johnny Erickson Tata. If you know anything about her, she's a woman of great suffering and great faith. And she said this. When you think of all the injustice and oppression and the fact that God lets that happen and uses it to reveal our own ugliness and our own hearts, that we might find Him. Johnny said this. Sometimes... God permits what He hates to accomplish what He loves. Sometimes God permits what He hates to accomplish what He loves. That's a snapshot of Easter. So let's talk about what God hates. I'll tell you right now, God hates the death of His Son. And yet, paradoxically, He loves the death of His Son. Wait a second, how does that work? He hates the death of his son. He hates what sin has done to this world and what ultimately did to his son. And yet, he loves sinners. 
Now, whether you believe in the miracle of the resurrection or not, let's just put that on the shelf for a second. Because I don't assume that everyone believes in that. But without doubt, the proven historicity of the death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that's undebatable. And what's undebatable about it is not that it occurred, but it is one of the greatest injustices in the history of the world. Even if you don't believe in all the miracle stuff, even if you don't believe in the resurrection, you have to go, wow, that screwed up. There's a real man in history named Jesus from a small village in northern Israel called Nazareth. And he was a 30-ish-year-old carpenter who for three years did nothing but serve and love both irreligious people and religious And without cause, he was falsely accused by strangers. He was betrayed by his friends. He was tried illegally by his leaders who were supposed to protect him. He was sentenced by corrupt politicians, and he was murdered brutally by a Roman police force who were just following orders. Like, if nothing else, which there certainly could be other things. But if nothing else, this tragedy confirms that for everyone, there's something not right with the world. That it's pretty broken, pretty messed up, pretty unjust if something like that could happen. Here's the amazing part. What happened at the cross was both, and at the same time, God's just condemnation on sin. Saying, this is what I think about sin. Sin is so bad that Jesus Christ, His Son, had to die to cover it. And yet, at the same time, it is God's declaration of this is how much I love you. Because I will send my Son to cover your sins. Now, just as Solomon had observed at the crucifixion, we have the politicians and the police and the people and even the pastors, the ones who were supposed to be standing for justice, the ones who were actually support, like, these are the ones who were supposed to defend God's word and what's right. These are the ones who actually caused all the injustice. And you go, where was the judge in all this? Where was the judge? He was on the cross. Judging sin and taking judgment for sinners. See, the cross is the revelation of just how beastly man is. And I know just like when we look back at Genesis 3 and you're like, oh, I wouldn't have eaten that fruit. <laughs> that was dumb. You would have been there either cheering Jesus' crucifixion or ignoring it altogether. So don't be prideful. The cross shows us just how beastly we are. Like animals rebelling against their master, even worse, creations killing their creator. If you've never watched The Passion of the Christ, you should. I've get through it, well, I've gotten through it one and a half times. And the reason I only get through it halfway, 
two-thirds of the way maybe is when they begin to beat Jesus. And it's not the brutality, though it's incredibly brutal. It's the fact that Jesus says nothing. That Jesus is beaten with hands he made. He's mocked and spit upon with tongues that he formed. And he stands and he takes it silently, absorbing the wrath of men and the wrath of God that those who beat him might have a chance for salvation. It's incredible. And I can't get past it. The cross shows just how beastly we are. The cross reveals our utter emptiness. But three days later, everything changes. That's why I titled the sermon, The Emptiness of the Tomb. This book is about emptiness. See, the Bible tells us that God, in the flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ, became empty so that we could be made full. Our God, our Creator, our King, He emptied Himself of all power, all wealth, all glory to serve and ultimately die on a cross that God's justice in that He couldn't just go, oh, let's just forget about it. No big deal. His justice and His love could stand at the same time. Jesus, who the Bible describes the judge of the living and dead, you realize he had every right as the judge to remain on his bench, to declare the world guilty, and to sentence everyone to death. This would have been fair. This would have been just. But life is not fair, and actually neither is God. He doesn't give us what we actually deserve. He goes beyond justice to mercy, dare I say, through justice to love. Unbelievably, the only judge and truly the only victim, the one who was actually sinned against, is the same person. He came down off his bench and he stood in the place of the convict. And on the cross, what do you see? You get a picture of your own emptiness and Jesus filling himself up with my death that I deserved, that I might be filled with his life. You see Jesus hanging on the cross, naked, being filled with my shame, the sinless Savior being filled with my shame. You want to know the number one problem in this room and with humanity? Shame. We hide because of the sins we've committed or the sins anybody committed against us and we feel dirty and exposed. Well, you know what the Savior did? He says, I'm going to expose myself as fully as I can for everyone and fill myself with all of the shame so that you can be filled with my worth. You can be called valuable. You can have your identity not set in what you have done or what's been done to you, but in what Jesus has done for you. He hangs on that cross being filled up with my guilt for my sins that I've committed past, present, and future that I'm not even aware of, that I might be filled with His righteousness, that I might stand before God hidden in Christ 
and he might see me as perfect as he sees his son. That's the gospel. The best news ever told in the history of the world. Now, some of us are living still on Friday. And what I mean by that is maybe you're still in shock about this bad world we live in. The badness that's come into your lives or the badness that's come into someone else's life. You're just like, I can't believe that. I can't believe the world is that broken. I can't believe that people are that broken and you sit in shock, kind of numb. Some of us live on Friday. I think a lot of us live actually on an Ecclesiastes Saturday. Having seen the badness and wondering if all is lost because everything just feels so empty. Sitting in perpetual disillusionment and despair. But it's Sunday. It is Sunday. Jesus did rise from the dead. The tomb is empty. That means something. And what it means is you actually don't have to have an Ecclesiastes Easter, at least after service. We can't though, and this is the truth and it's a hard truth, we can't get to Sunday unless we go through Friday and Saturday. Here's why. Because nothing can be resurrected unless it dies. God permits what He hates to accomplish what He loves. The cross shows us that. God loves us. He is close. He is present. He is in control. And the proof is that He sent His Son to die in our place. And so through faith, we die with Him. And once we die with Christ, once we surrender it all to Christ, we say, my life is yours. You bought it with a price. We become something entirely different. We die by surrendering our lives and emptying ourselves of our rights. We empty ourselves of our plans, of our hopes, of our preferences, of our self-trust, of our self-dependence, and we trust Jesus with our lives and our deaths. Two things that we have to admit we don't have any control over. So we live on Sunday where our old lives have been buried. They're gone. All that shame, all that guilt, all that brokenness that has come into our lives or we have brought into our lives. And what has risen is not just, okay, this is something better. Positive thinking. No, it's something entirely new. The old is gone. The new has come. Life on Sunday is knowing. <clears throat> Dang it, I cried last time too at this point. It's knowing that even when things get Ecclesiastes dark, the tomb is still empty, and Jesus is still on His throne, and He is still coming again to wipe every tear away and make all things right. Now, we are going to baptize. I think we've lost what baptism is. It certainly doesn't have the same meaning that it does, I think, globally in America. 
feels like something we just do, something you have done. But it's for those who believe this. And I want you to remember, if you've been baptized, to believe this. Believe this every time you take communion, as you remember your baptism. Because baptism is for those who believe that though they may experience, and you will, more Fridays and more Saturdays, you're going to live on Sunday with Jesus. See, Easter Sunday is the best time to do baptisms because it connects so clearly with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It gets us such a beautiful picture, a picture that we need to look at more and more often. Because baptism is way more than just getting wet. In many ways, it's a public funeral. It's a declaration that when I died, or when Jesus died, I died with him. Now, when I went under, that water cleansed me of my shame and my guilt. What had already happened in my heart is revealed publicly to everyone, and I rose with him. And when I rose, I was raised new and free. So remember, the world may be empty, and it is, but so is the tomb. And so we can walk in the newness of life knowing that I am loved by a Savior who conquered sin, conquered Satan, conquered death, and no matter what I go through, whenever dark it gets, whenever Friday comes my way, Saturday comes my way, Jesus says, I will be with you wherever you go into every wilderness, and I will bring you back to Him where we live with Him eternally, free and clean and joy-filled. Believe it, I pray. Let's pray.